song, isn't it? <clears throat> That's got a tremendous message, and they do a f- really good job on that. Appreciate that, ladies. All right, let's take our Bibles, turn over to the book of First Timothy again. First Timothy chapter 3, we are going to continue with our message from last week as we were dealing with uh, the pastorate or elders, bishops, uh, one of those three terms. They all mean the point to the same office, but again, we're dealing with the book of Timothy, and as we noted a number of times already, but just by way of summary, we're dealing with uh, a, a young man who's pastor at the church of Ephesus, and he has this mentor by the name of 
The Apostle Paul, what a mentor that would be, correct? I mean, can you imagine getting an opportunity to ask him questions about his past and his present and just his future and what, what a blessing it would be. But the fact is, is that he is uh, training and teaching and preparing this young man. And along the way, even after he's the pastor already, he's still trying to give him, inve- he's investing in his life and he's seeking to help him to pastor the church in a way that will honor Christ. Boy, Timothy faced a number of things and a number of oppositions and he faced people and circumstances and situations that we face today. And sometimes we get the idea when we look at the Word of God that somehow it wasn't the same back then as it is now. But it was just the same. There may be a different setting. There may be a few different names to, you know, names have been changed to protect the innocent and all that good stuff. But the reality is they were just people like you and I. And uh, boy, sometimes when we see the, the wonderful way that God worked and moved in the lives of these men and women of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and early Christianity, we think to ourselves, wow, I wish I could have lived back then, experienced that firsthand. But the reality is, is that we can. Amen. And the question is whether or not we're willing to make the investment in the Lord and truly the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and in holiness and purity and sanctification and so forth. And so Timothy, a young man, would prove himself there at the church of Ephesus. He would go on to do a fabulous job. Now, as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to to read this, and then we'll kind of summarize it very quickly and jump right back into those qualities and character traits that uh, we haven't yet covered. So let's begin in chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and let's read our text for this particular lesson. This is a true saying... If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, How shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now again, the word of God paints us a picture of what a pastor should and shouldn't be. And boy, I'll tell you what, it's a sobering list. As you read through it, you think, wow, that's, that's, that's something there. And yet, on the other hand, if we really want to look at it the way it's expressed, it is the bare minimum that's required to be in the pastorate. It's not the top end, it's the bottom end. And that's kind of an interesting thought for a minute, to think that that's the bare minimum that a man must measure up to in order to be even considered for the office. Not to take the office, but to be considered for it. And so... We see that, again, it paints us this picture. It identifies the kind of traits and qualities that must be present, not should be or might be, but must be. And um, so, therefore, these traits and these characteristics, these qualities, kind of give us a guide by which to evaluate the qualifications of a particular person who would occupy the office of pastor. Whether it's Community Baptist Temple or some other church, the reality is is that this is the bare minimum requirement that's necessary to fulfill or to take the office of pastor. Now, we noted there were three terms, and each of them describes the same office. Bishop, 
elder, pastor. Each of them accentuates a slightly different characteristic of that position, but they all mean or describe the same office. Now, we noted that there's a desire that must be present. The Bible says, of course, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. But first, notice, a man desireth the office, if he desires an off, the office of a bishop. I think in, and believe without all my heart that there must be a desire for the pastorate. If you don't have a desire for it, due to the many challenges that you're going to face, the obstacles that you're going to be uh, dealing with on a regular basis, you're going to question your call. You're going to question whether or not you ought to be in the ministry at all if you don't love it. You better love what you're doing. You better have a desire for it. Someone says, well, I never had a desire to be a pastor of a church. Well, then you shouldn't be one. You just shouldn't be one. I mean, that, that, it's, not, it's not complicated. It's not hard. Well, I got thrown into the job. Well, then you shouldn't be there and you're not qualified. I'm not trying to be nasty or mean. I'm just saying there is a desire that is required here. There's something here about desire. Uh, you know, I've heard of stories where pastors just ended up in the ministry. Somebody says, well, I guess you're the next one in line. Jump up there. And they start preaching. And next thing you know, they're considered pastor. And before you know it, it settles in and that's... They've got the title. Well, that's not how it's supposed to work. And then we wonder why our churches don't grow. And we wonder why God's not really working through the, mass, the, the, the minister of God. We wonder why the ministry itself is not flourishing possibly. Maybe he doesn't really have a desire. Maybe he endures the ministry. He doesn't enjoy it. Then we noted not only that there must be a desire in chapter 3 verse 1, but we noted in chapter 3 verse 2 through 7 the description. And the first description or the first character quality trait that we noted was blameless. Blameless. And again, it's important to note that this quality is first. It sets at the top of the list. The word used, that means, the word used here means irreproachable. It means free from blame, upright, innocent. His character and reputation must be stainless, we said. And we noted that for the man of God, character is as important as competence. So it says, well, I'm quite capable to pastor this church. Yeah, but you, 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 may be, you may be competent, but you have to have the right character. That's just the reality. I mean, you may know more Bible than anybody in the church, but that doesn't make you more qualified to pastor. And then that we saw that it was husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. And we basically said the position of bishop and elder and pastor after we considered a few passages and after we looked at a few uh, angles, so to speak, we said that that position is reserved for those who have not been divorced. Again, we, 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 we recognize the fact that some will say it's one at a time, one wife at a time. But it just seems interesting, as we noted in 1 Timothy 5, how you know the, the widows indeed had to be married to one man. But I don't read anywhere where they had more than one husband. It's interesting to me. So nonetheless, consistency seems to point to the fact that a man of God, the one who occupies the position of pastor, and again, we said as a church grows, there's a number of other types of positions in a ministry that may be full-time that do not and are not the pastorate. And that may be, that's a whole other ball of wax. But for the point and for the, the circumstance that we find ourselves here in 1 Timothy 3, as he goes through the qualifications of pastor, bishop, elder, all pointing to the same office, he says they're to be the husband of one wife. And the only exception to that rule 
doesn't involve divorce, but death. And if a pastor loses his wife to death and he remarries, well, he's still qualified for the pastor. Now, we went on and we talked about vigilant. He's to be vigilant. And what Paul was saying is that an elder must possess self-control. He must be watchful. He needs to be circumspect, like we read about in the book of Ephesians. He needs to be attentive to discover and avoid danger. He needs to be able to provide safety for those who, he, who are in his watch care. And, and it is important to understand this. And because, again, we, we kind of lose sight of this. Because today we all are big boys and we all wear big boy pants today. We're all told we're all somebody and we're so important. I'm going to tell, level with you today. You need to understand that your pastor has been placed there by God to protect you. Now listen, I don't care how big you are, how bad you are. I don't care how spiritual you think you are. Every single person needs a local church and every single person needs a pastor watching over them spiritually. That is a reality of life. That's not, hey, I'm not saying that because I'm the pastor of Community Baptist Temple. I'm saying that because that's what the Bible teaches the man of God is supposed to be able to do. And let me tell you something. You don't get a guy or a man or anybody in this pulpit that's going to pastor Community Baptist Temple unless you can trust him to watch over your souls. Well, we just need a good preacher because I can take care of all that mess. No, you need a man of God according to the word of God in the pulpit that God put here. Finally, we ended with sober. And we're not talking about not drinking again. He's de- addressed that already. No, wait, we might be getting to that one, won't we? Yeah, we're getting to that one. I, I can't wait to get to that one. But anyway, sober. Because I, I found a loophole, and I'm going to go out tonight, and I'm going to... But anyway, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. So anyway, so <laughs> Brother Rick said he'd take me out. But anyway... <laughs> yeah, I got to buy, though, right? Oh, Okay. Yeah, you, yeah, okay, thanks. So <laughs> the word for sober, we said, describes a person who's sober-minded and serious, who has a sound mind. Now that's kind of, I know in your case it's kind of questionable with me, but nonetheless, the Bible basically teaches that he needs to be able to draw wise conclusions or come to good conclusions. And basically he's the kind of person that, that doesn't jump to conclusions, but instead has to hear all the facts and then kind of comes to that conclusion. So... An elder ought to be known as being someone that's discreet, that's very careful, that doesn't, again, jump to conclusions. And so that's where we ended. And now we want to begin with the next one, which is of good behavior. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, bless us in these next few moments. Be glorified in everything that's said and done. We'll thank you. We'll praise you because, Lord, we need you to teach us and to help us to be complete, to be mature, and to be growing in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Of good behavior, <clears throat> of good behavior. Um, again, he says, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Now again, elders, bishops, pastors, they, they need to be wise in their conduct. And that's not saying that a pastor can't have a good time, he can't cut up, can't laugh. That's not what it's talking about. But yet, there still does need to be an element, as we noted, soberness. There has to be this element of good behavior. The Greek word for of good behavior expresses the idea of being orderly. This this aspect of orderly. And therefore suggests that the man of God has to have a disciplined life. If he does not possess a disciplined life, then he is not qualified for the ministry. Now, I mean, honestly, who can respect an elder or a pastor or 
a bishop, as we're, we see them called in the Bible, who could respect someone like that who who's, has slovenly habits? I mean, whose behavior is undisciplined and, and disorderly? I mean, who could respect that? Now listen, we live in a day and age where that is normal behavior. But that does not belong in the pulpit. And it doesn't belong in the pastorate. I mean, a man who's always late for meetings, forgets appointments, breaks promises, is careless about his physical appearance, and constantly misplaces important papers, does not qualify for a leadership position in the church. That's just a reality of life, biblically, scripturally. That's not something we talk about a lot today. But look at the condition of our churches. And maybe sometimes we're getting away from this aspect of an orderly, disciplined lifestyle. The pastor, if he fails to have that kind of lifestyle, it will affect every area of his life and his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 14, 40, the Bible says, Let all things be done decently and in order. Of course, there it's talking about the ministry. That the ministry is to be done decently and in order. And if that is to happen then the church must be run the same way, decently and in order. See, that means that the pastor must exercise discipline in his own life in order to be found, to be able to find discipline in the church then. If a church is chaotic and confusing, guess what? It's because the pastor's not an orderly, disciplined person. Now, sometimes, as the church grows, obviously, he may lose touch with certain areas. And that's where he has to continually strive to be connected with those leaders and to continue to require and demand orderliness. That's why we have requirements for our teachers, our workers, and so forth. That's why we require certain aspects of spiritual visibility or spiritual growth visibly from certain people that are, quote, in leadership because the church itself must maintain a picture of discipline and orderliness. Everybody can't do whatever they want. There has to be order. And by the way, everybody has a plan. It's kind of like we talk about the bus kids all the time. You don't have a plan for them. They got one for you. So the ministry has to be done this way, decently and in order of good behavior. And it goes back to that aspect of disciplining oneself, being wise in our conduct. Then it goes on to say, given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. The expression given to hospitality, again, implies love of strangers. Love of strangers. Now, Paul was saying that being hospitable is to basically open one's home to visitors without any regard of reward, without expecting anything in return. To open the doors of our home, to invite strangers necess- even in, to invite people in without any, any idea of getting anything in return. Now, we got a tremendous example of this. Turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25, verse 34. Again, in this particular passage, it's pointing to a day when Christ is judging the nations. And notice what he says as he judges the nations. It's interesting how, well, just notice what he says. It's, it's really good. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. <clears throat> then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, 
Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. Now this is taking place after the seven-year tribulation. And the nations are being judged now to see who will go on into the millennium. And notice again, he says, For I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, before we say the next statement, where is Jesus during the tribulation period? Anybody remember? What's going on during the tribulation period from all we can tell biblically? The judgment seat of Christ. So who's judging? Jesus is. So he's not on earth, obviously, right? Now watch what, he, watch what goes on. These, these, these righteous make a very good observation. They're spot on. Then shall, verse 37, the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungred and fed thee? Or thirsty and gave thee drink. When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye've done it unto me. Isn't that interesting? Well, I'll tell you what, you want to talk about hospitality, the Lord Jesus put a pretty big premium on it. He's basically saying when you meet the need of someone else, even a stranger, you're doing that to me. Well, I can only imagine if Jesus showed up at any one of our doors tonight and we were confident that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. I doubt any one of us would would reject him. I bet not one of us would say, you're not welcome here. I bet none of us would say, well, I have a bunch of children here and I've got to be careful for their safety. You're not permitted in this house. I don't even know you. You get where I'm going with this? He says, and again, obviously we have to use some good judgment from time to time. But the fact is, is that we'd probably be much more apt to be hospitable if we viewed it the way Jesus tells us he sees it. That it was really him we're being hospitable to. See, elders should consider hospitality a delight, not a duty, and and, and we should in, enjoy entertaining. And the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, he was, he was writing during a time when Nero, the, the Roman emperor, was on a rampage and he was persecuting Christians unmercilessly. Many Christians were homeless refugees. Had nowhere to stay. They had nowhere to go. Had nobody that they could turn to. And by taking some of these refugees into their homes, you would... Assume that they were inviting some danger, and very possibly they could have been. But these faithful, these godly elders who were hospitable disregarded the potential dangers that could have lurked in the darkness and instead offered bed and board to these strangers who had nowhere else to stay. So the elder must be friendly, must be given to fellowship, must be given to kindness. He must be hospitable. And I'm, I'm just going to say this, because it's impossible for an elder to be 
hospitable if his wife is an ogre. If his wife is unfriendly. If his wife is critical and cynical and hateful and nasty. He can't possibly fulfill his role that God called him to. And we'll deal with that in a moment maybe. But it's important to understand that this is an impossibility for a man to be hospitable if he does not have a wife equally hospitable. Again, now we continue in our list. It says, apt to teach. This man of God, this elder, bishop, pastor, must be apt to teach, to be qualified to pastor or hold the position. The word training, translated apt to teach means to be skilled in teaching. <laughs> wow, is that good? You're apt to teach. You're skilled in teaching. Wow, that's some deep theologic, theological stuff right there. Skilled in teaching. <clears throat> now, the ability to teach the Word of God like any other skill is not acquired overnight. The Bible is a library of books, 66 to be exact, and... The fact is, is that it requires years of faithful study if you wish to interpret it properly. To truly get a grasp on it. There's no way that a person can get that grasp on doctrine or on the principles of the Word of God unless they spend countless hours and hours and hours investing in the Word of God. Apt to teach. It can't be forgotten though. That the difference, there is a difference between simply knowing the truth and, and, and communicating it from the aspect of having a touch of God on your life. You must possess a spiritual gift in this area of teaching. This is not run-of-the-mill. It's not just good enough. You are apt to teach. And it ought to be visible it's not something that the church should have to stand here and listen to somebody and go, wow, they're done. Boy, that's, that was a good message, I guess, but boy, I tell you, I was having a hard time following them. It's a hard time keeping with them. You're not ready for the ministry, friend. I'm not talking about you have to be eloquent and you have to be able to woo people with your charisma, but I am talking about this. When you state a truth in the Word of God, you better be able to Lay it out and you better be able to build upon a foundation. You better be able to bring people to a place where there's a decision to be made and it's clear what that is. Boy, our standards are so low today. You know, years ago, do you know that ministers years ago, just 100 years ago or so, maybe 120 years now, they would go to four years of college, often to a school like Harvard or Yale or one of those types of schools, spend four years getting a degree or maybe to another school getting a degree and then they'd go to a school like Harvard and spend another two more years learning just the Word of God, sometimes four years. They'd spend six to eight years in training before they were even considered for this position. What's happened to us? How is it that today, all you have to do is go to Bible college, get a degree, and automatically everybody says, well, he's got a degree, so then obviously he's qualified. 
You can get a good, a good... I heard somebody say the other day, they said, man, why even waste your time? Just go on the internet. You can get an ordination real easy. Matter of fact, the new thing that they're doing now is that, oh, you know what? Me and Chris are buddies. Hey, Chris, by the way, Brother Chris, you know, I'm getting married next week. Uh, could you marry me? Well, you can't. You got to be ordained. You got to have a license. That's right. Get on the internet. You can get your license. And then you can marry me instead of a preacher. I have my buddy marry me. That's the new things going on now. Because you can get those so easily. What's wrong? We, we've got to be careful that we don't degrade the position and that we don't allow just anyone to take this spot. Listen, I know it's not a matter. I'm not trying to say we're better. We're going to make sure. No, but you want to know something? I'm going to tell you something. It's your spiritual future and your family's at stake. They need to be apt to teach. So apt to teach demands both knowledge and skill, but it also requires a touch from God. And if a person doesn't have the propensity for teaching or an ability to get the point across, then they're not qualified to be a bishop, a pastor, or an elder. Now, let's talk about the next one. Not given to wine. Not given to wine. Now, according to the passage, the, the bishop is not permitted to drink any alcohol. It, it, it's pretty clear, I think. Not given to wine. And, and somebody said, well, that means not given much to it. That means this, that means that, whatever. You can come up with all kinds of ideas, whatever you want to come up with. But a person who is given to alcohol is not fit to be an elder in the church. If you find out some joker comes up here to candidate for Community Baptist Temple to be the pastor, and you find out that he's over here drinking wine with his dinner, and that he's over there at Christmas time having little, little spirits with it, he isn't qualified to stand back here as, as the pastor of this church. No, he, he's not qualified. He's just not qualified. Now, today we have those who call themselves preachers who not only drink wine at dinner or alcohol when they're off duty, but they start ministries in bars. That's, that's really the new thing. It's really important that we really connect with people where they're at, that we show them that we're not a bunch of legalistic people, that this isn't all... Matter of fact, one ministry I was reading about just today, they, 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 they like have their... They go into the bar and they, they have a, the ministry started in, their, in a bar now. And what they do is for every first-time visitor, they buy them a drink. Because they want them to know that they're not, they're not judgmental and they're not looking down on them just because they're not, you know, perfect people. Oh, what a joke. So what happens once they get saved? I guess there's no need for change, right? It's a joke. But nonetheless, in the Word of God, there are three groups in the Bible who are not permitted to wine or strong drink. Three groups. Number one... The priests. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. The priests were not permitted to drink due to their duties. Notice what it says here in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. <clears throat> we're going to look at three groups who weren't permitted to take or to drink wine or strong drink. In 
In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye, what? Die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. The Lord basically said to Aaron, the high priest, who was the head of the Arianic priesthood, he's saying, listen, don't drink anything that's, uh, that has anything to do with alcohol when you come here toward me. When you get, want to get in my presence, you better not have anything to drink at all because you could lose your life. This is a holy place. No place for alcohol here. God makes it clear that not only is it for Aaron, but it's for his sons and their sons and their sons. It's a perpetual statute. And this goes for anyone who stands before God in the priesthood. And what it does basically is it provides a distinction. A distinction between the holy and the profane. A distinction between the unclean and the clean. And what we're basically reading, what we're hearing, and it's being said, is that unclean, the unclean drink wine. They, they drink strong drink. The clean do not. Profane drink wine, strong drink. Holy do not. And he goes on basically to tell Aaron, you have a tremendous responsibility to teach these divine laws and this book, this word that I have shared with you, and you're to give it to all of these people. This is a serious business you're in. You need to be clear-minded, clear-headed, and you need to set the highest example of holiness. It doesn't include alcohol. Group number two, those who are separated. You've heard of the Nazarite vow? Look in Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. That's all right. If you want to be a nominal Christian, a mediocre Christian, you just don't mind. Just get along and just be good enough. Go ahead. Do whatever you want to do. That, I mean, really, that's just the reality of it. Because that's the mentality today. I mean, so really, what, what's the big deal, right? I mean, who cares? I mean, I'm still saved, whatever. But if you truly want to honor God, you really want to be holy and living, you really want to do something for Jesus Christ, well, then there's going to be some price to pay for that. It costs something to live a separated, sanctified life unto Jesus Christ. It costs something to be holy. But that's not comfortable. And so many times we just say, well, whatever. And unfortunately, this has become one of those issues that has been one of those whatever issues in the church that just 20 or 30 years ago would never have held any water, let alone wine. How'd you like that one? That had to be the Lord because that wasn't in my notes. Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dried. And this guy's really separated. He has made, I mean, he has truly separated himself. And when a person separates themselves by the Nazarite vow, and that's the vow we're discussing here and we're, we're recognizing, then they're making a very special vow of dedication, a very special vow of devotion to the Lord. And that vow demands abstinence. Total abstinence from wine, strong drink, along with any other aspect of the fruit of the vine. 
So if you or I would have taken that most severe, that most devout of all vows, you'd never drink anything that came from the grape or the fruit of the vine, let alone wine and strong drink. It's interesting. Number three, group number three, kings, kings. Notice what it says in Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 4 through 7. Notice the Bible says there in chapter 31, verse 4, Is it not for kings, O Lemuel? Is it not for kings to drink wine? For the princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of a heavy heart, of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. The writer's making it very clear then that wine and strong drink do not belong to kings. And someone says, but why? Well, the writer answers that. Because they'll drink and forget what is right, what is wrong. They'll forget and pervert judgment. They'll allow the wine to direct them or to ultimately affect their judgment. We don't know anyone like that in America. Notice who is to receive strong drink, though. You say, well, somebody's supposed to, yeah, according to the Bible. Now watch. Those who are perishing. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, if I lived in that day and somebody was dying and they were in severe pain, maybe you'd give them some alcohol. I, I mean, maybe you would do that because we don't have morphine or other drugs. I don't know. Maybe. That would seem to make sense to me, possibly. Instead of watching them totally suffer before your very eyes, maybe allow them to take something to ease the pain. I don't know. Someone says, well, that sounds like heresy already. Yeah. Do what you want, but if I didn't have any other kind of drugs to take and I was in extreme severe pain and there was nothing but strong drink, and the Bible says give strong drink to those that are dying, I just may take it. But I wouldn't take it if I'm pastoring this church right now. Because I wouldn't be dying, I hope, as I stand here and proclaim the Word of God. Now, it may sound like I am at times, but <laughs> that's not really the case. It just sounds that way. So, there are those that are perishing. And there are those that are in pain and on the verge of death. And then also, notice who are given wine now. Those whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Boy, that's a hopeless person, isn't it? Aren't you glad as a believer you're not hopeless? A ruler... No. A priest? Uh-uh. One that takes the highest level of separation or devotion to God? Uh-uh. A king? No, never. See, with greater power comes greater responsibility, greater visibility and accountability. And the bishop is not permitted to drink alcohol. You call it social, you call it whatever you want. He is not permitted to drink it. Here's the thought that I have, though, for you. 
Because I'm, I grow weary of answering the same questions over and over for people. Let's just make it simple here. When one considers that every believer has been made a king and a priest, according to Revelation 1, 5, and 6, every one of you are called kings and priests. And you know what else? Every one of us in this room are called to be separated unto the Lord according to 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Not only that, but Romans 12, 1 and 2. It would seem clear to me then that no believer should drink alcohol. Because we're all kings, we're all priests, and we're all separated unto Him. Well, preacher, is it okay for me to drink wine socially? Well, you're a king... You're a priest, and you're separated unto God. Seems to me you're not permitted to drink according to the Word of God. That right there is proof positive to me. You say, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Well, you probably need to research that a little bit more too. But the fact is, is that it doesn't matter what Jesus did with his water and wine, because all I know is I'm a king, and I'm a priest, and I've been separated unto God. Therefore, I can't drink alcohol because I'm to be the greatest example of holiness possible to a world that is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. Thank you, preacher. We're so glad for that clarity. So the next time you let your child come in your home with alcohol, you ought to just send them right on out the door and say you're not permitting this house with that trash because we're kings and we're priests and we have been separated and dedicated unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Get out of here! Amen. That's right. Yes, sir. You want that in your life? Then go find somewhere else to live. There you go, brother. Because it's not in my home. Amen. Amen. Just thought I'd share that with you. Be a blessing. Yes, no striker, he says. No striker. And I love striker. Remember, John Wayne played that part. He was striker. On the sands of Iwo Jima. I love that part. He gets shot in the end and it really, it's a tear, it's a tearjerker. See John there just slipping away as the flag is raised. Makes you want to join the military, doesn't it? Maybe not. But anyway, no striker. Real quickly, that just refers to somebody that's always ready with the fist. I mean, this is what and how you deal with problems, right here. It's quick, it's, it's right to a fight. I mean, and not just a fight, but you're using your knuckles, using your fist. That's what it refers to, that's what it goes back to. This guy strikes back, he, he, he's a quarreler, he likes to... That, that's, that's probably not a good personality trait for the pastor of a local church. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. <clears throat> Not greedy of filthy lucre. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the bottom line is he doesn't have a love of money. He doesn't have a love of it. He didn't say he doesn't like it. Of course he likes it. We all like it. But he doesn't love it. If he has it, good for him. If he doesn't, he's okay with that too. He's not in pursuit of it. He doesn't strive after it. It's not his main goal. Listen, I made a commitment a long time ago that I'd never, ever do anything else but pastor a church when I became the preacher. 
I wasn't going to have a side job unless I had to to keep the ministry afloat. I wasn't going to have it so I could put my kids through school. I wasn't going to sell Bibles. I wasn't going to do any of that stuff. I don't have time for another job to make a few bucks. God's going to have to take care of me. This is what God called me to do. And if money is my priority, then I don't belong in this pulpit. I don't belong here. Now, I'll say this. Just because a pastor may have something going like that, I'm not going to condemn him. But I say for me, I personally can't juggle the two. I can't understand how anyone could do that because of my personality, maybe. But I don't think that God ever intended that the pulpit be shared with any other ambition. I don't believe that. I don't. You say, well, Paul went around and he was making tents. He was making tents because he had to have a livelihood. Not because he was supported so well and he wanted extra money for his kids. Listen, I think it's the church's job to support the pastor. I think they need to do that. If he shows himself a worker, if he shows himself a teacher, if he's following through with the characteristics, the qualities, performing his duties as God intended, then the church ought to take good care of him. The Bible says he's worthy of double honor. We don't want to define that, do we? Because that would make us feel bad. Double honor, you say, well, that's just honor this way. Oh, I think it has honor to do with this way, too. I just don't think we like to talk much about that because we like to think, especially our young preachers, let's keep them humble. Let's keep them trusting God. Yeah, okay. If they prove themselves worthy, then they ought to be cared for very well. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not talking about they'd have to be 50 years old. I'm talking about they could be 30 years old and have been pastoring for five years and be very faithful at their work and proving themselves over and over again. Take good care of them financially. Don't force them. Don't make them feel like they need to go out and do something else to support their family. But then again, if they're doing what's necessary and they still continue to split the time, maybe you need to talk to your pastor and say, Preacher, I'm just kind of curious. I thought we were paying you a good salary of fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and I'm trying to understand. Do you, I mean why you have to go and do this on the side to make extra money? I'm not sure if I understand that. You're allowed to ask those questions if you ask in the right spirit. I have a I have a problem with somebody making seventy thousand dollars in ministry and has to have a side job for his kids. I think it's a good idea for him to teach his kids how to work. But anyway, moving on. <clears throat> Last thing I'm going to do is send my kid to Bible college and pay for it all so he can play around the whole time. But anyway, I'm sorry I'm getting off track. I've got to close this out because we're, late. We're, clo- we're out of time. Praise the Lord, we're out of time. <laughs> it's getting worse as we go, isn't it? But anyway, for the love of money is the root of all evil, while some, while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So all you young men, let me tell you, when we go through our school of prophets and any other thing we do, I will always encourage the man of God to make the ministry his life. I'm just telling you right now, not to have any other ambition but the ministry so that he can devote his whole time to the ministry and to his family as God intended. That way there's no conflict of interest there. So anyway, that's simple. Okay. Not greedy. Well, we're going to have to quit before I get to the the real good one, the one I really like the most. But there's a lot of these, aren't there? You start breaking them down, you realize there is a ton of requirements and qualifications. 
you know, I'm going through these things and I'm putting check marks at some and some of them I'm just kind of passing over until I can get to them later. <clears throat> but anyway, we're working on it, staying at it. All right, we're going to dismiss. And uh, again, next Wednesday night we kick off and, and unfortunately we'll have to, we'll pick this all up later. But I am excited about this new class. Uh, I'm, I'm bringing my notebook, man. I'm getting ready to write some notes. And uh, we'll see what uh, Brother Mark has in store for us, talking about Mr. Ge- geology there. He, he's got a handle on this stuff. Uh, brother, I'm just curious. How many books do you figure you've read to prepare for this study? Okay, so about 12 or 13 books. All right. I, I don't think we need to question whether or not he's ready for this. The question is, are we ready for it? Amen? I got a feeling we're going to have to write some real fast notes or something here because that's a lot of information. So hopefully the Lord will give him wisdom on what to give us and what not to because we can only handle so much, all right? But anyway, I am looking forward to it. That's what it takes to get the job done right. And I appreciate his attitude and his desire to study and prepare. You're going to be glad. Invite somebody to come with you next week. Tell them. What's, what's the study again? Evolution versus creation versus evolution, right? Okay, creation versus evolution. You say that term and people are going to go, really? I want to hear about that. Get them here. They'll be glad they came. All right, Father, we thank you. We love you for all you do.